Fathers, our heart, our Father, our heart's delight to anticipate all that you have prepared for us in Christ Jesus. The fullness of your glory, our Lord, in your inheritance in the saints. And the full realization on our part of what you have accomplished and purchased for us in the fullness of our salvation, which of its very essence and at its very heart is the gift of yourself to us. The fellowship that we have with you and with the Father in you and with the Spirit. And through our fellowship with you, the fellowship that we have with one another, now of which we have a foretaste, but in the future will be known in the the fullest and most comprehensive glory that we can't even imagine now. So we pray, O God, as we open your word together, as we prepare our hearts, as we do each week to remember these great truths in your table, that you would empower your word and strengthen our hearts to receive all that you have for us, that you would do so by your spirit who indwells us, who is our teacher, who is the one who enlightens our eyes and illuminates your word. We pray now that you would take and apply this ministry to us. And we ask these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died, who rose, intercedes, and is returning for us. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7 again. To Revelation chapter 7. As I mentioned last week, we're, we're not in any particular hurry to get through this section. Uh, we want to kind of camp out here a little bit and slow down, simply because there's such wonderful truths for our encouragement, such wonderful truths for us to meditate on uh, as we are in the a book that mostly unfolds for much of its chapters the judgment that is to come upon the world, the, the horrors that are to come as a consequence of the justice of God and his holy wrath against man's sin. But he doesn't leave us without encouragements along the way as well and, and things for his people to meditate on, ways to, to strengthen our hope, to set our eyes on the, the end of the suffering, which is to be with Christ forever and to enjoy his glory and to enjoy as we pray and sing about the fullness of our salvation in him. And so he does that in Revelation chapter 7. And we need this. We need this. We need to look forward. And that that is the very essence of our salvation. And even though as we come here to this scene in Revelation chapter 7, we're not experiencing, at least in our context, the level of persecution and trials that, that's going to be the, uh, the, the reality of those who comprise this, trial, tri- uh, this crowd who are called from every tribe, nation, and tongue who came out of the great tribulation. Yet it is true of every Christian who has the Holy Spirit and who shares in the life of Christ, who has been made to see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, who has been made to taste of of true holiness, that we groan within ourselves, We, we long for the end of the experience of what this world has to enter into that true country of our citizenship, that true place of our eternal abode in the presence of God. So Paul says it this way, In familiar words, in Romans 8.23, he says, We ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
So if you know Christ, if you have the indwelling Spirit in you, if you are united to Him by the Spirit and through faith, you know something of this groaning because you know things are not as they ought to be and you're not experiencing all that your heart longs for. There is still the reality of sin and indwelling sin. And so we, we know this. There's still the pain and the sorrow and the tears of, of this world and the tragedy that we experience here. As we come into Revelation chapter 7, and as we think about this future of being with Christ, the, the, the full realization of it isn't until we, we actually have our resurrected bodies, which as we argued and we will continue uh, when we look at this again next week, is not yet the full experience of those that we're encountering in these crowds. It's not yet the resurrected state. Nonetheless, Believers who die now, even though awaiting for that final and fullness of our salvation in the resurrection, do enjoy the presence of Christ. The end is the new heavens and the new earth and resurrected bodies and, and all that he's going to lay out for us at the end of the chapter. But believers have this hope, and it's a certain hope, is that to end this life, and I don't know, was it Mike? I think you prayed that earlier have the certain hope that at the other end of death, at the other side of the grave, at the moment of leaving this world and entering into the next, it is for the believer an entrance into the presence of Christ, into a gaze upon His glory at such a, uh, that we have not yet experienced. It is a time of joy. It is a freedom from the presence of sin. So Paul could say this to the church at Philippi. He had the desire to depart and be with Christ, he says, for that is very much better. And to the church at Corinth, he said, to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. And so that's the reality that we get a peek into here in Revelation chapter 7. So as I noted, we're going to slow down a bit to consider it and dwell on these glorious realities because they are for the encouragement of our heart, and we need them. And we even sang that uh, in the song, uh, Rejoice, in the times in which we live, in the seasons that make up the, the different parts of our life, we can rejoice because of the hope and the certainty that we have in Christ. So let me read from Revelation chapter 7, and, and I'll pick it up this morning in verse 13 and read down to verse 17, and then we'll take it from there. So beginning in verse 13, and you'll remember this is a conversation that John has with one of the elders in the vision he just saw of the great crowd before the throne of God and the angels who are worshiping God there together, all of this massive, massive part of humanity and uh, the angelic world worshiping Christ. And then in verse 13, we pick up here. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will no longer hunger nor thirst anymore nor will the sun beat down on them nor any heat for the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now go back up to verse 14. And I'm just going to remind you of where we were last week. And namely, 
We noted last week in this section, which we have given the big title of an explanation of salvation, we noted first the necessity of faith in Christ for cleansing. The necessity of faith in Christ for cleansing. And this is just, again, a brief reminder of what we looked at last week. And we noted that those who comprise this worshiping crowd are not there because of their faithfulness, they're not there because of their righteousness, they're not there because of their works. They, like all and all of us, as Paul said, even as he was writing to the church, the church at Ephesus, that we were all, and these, by nature, children of wrath. By nature, children of wrath. So they are here because they necessarily had to experience a cleansing, and this came, as he notes here in verse 14, that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so we focus then on that first phrase of verse 15, for this reason they are before the throne, for this reason and for that reason only, because they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That is how they are able to be in the presence of God. What God foreshadowed over a millennia through the sacrificial system of Israel, namely that God is gracious to draw near to his people, but because of our sin, this can only happen through blood sacrifice, through a life that's given in place of the sinner, and the life given in the place of another. And what was pictured in the blood of bulls and goats was realized and fulfilled in the words of Hebrews 10.10 by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so they're here, as is everyone who is able to stand in the presence of God because of the grace of Jesus Christ, because of his atoning death, because of his resurrection. And they're here because they evidence this experience of being cleansed by the righteousness and the fruit of righteousness in their lives. And so we noted in Revelation 19.8, this imagery is picked up again. And it says in the the context of the the marriage supper of the Lamb, he says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 8, it was given to her, speaking of the church, the bride of the Lamb, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And we noted there that that is the very fruit of the the reality that they had been cleansed, they had been covered under the blood of Jesus Christ, that they have been justified, they have been counted righteous, they have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them, their standing before God is not guilty, but righteous, righteous as the Son, because it's covered in His life. And we noted as well then, with justification, it necessarily follows sanctification. That the reality of justification is not isolated, it is always connected in Scripture with a transformed life. That the justified saint, who is truly justified, is in the process of sanctification and evidences that faith in Christ and that new standing with Christ by a new life that follows Christ. A new life that obeys Christ, that submits to his commandments as the basic disposition of the heart. And so that's where we were last week. It is for this reason, it is for this reason because they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now look at the next phrase. He says, it is for this reason they are before the throne of God. They are before the throne of God. And this is marvelous. And what I want to highlight this morning is that little word, they are, or are. 
They are before the throne of God. It's not they might be. It's not there's a potential that they will be. He is picturing them in the absolute promised and certain state of the end of their life and of their faith, and that is that they are in the presence of God. This is marvelous. It is a picture of our end, full unhindered access to the presence of God, to be before the glory of His presence, His throne, without being consumed but rather filled with the overwhelming joy of worship at the clear sight of Him. Now this really should capture us, and this should amaze us. It, it, it actually, if we're, we're thinking in terms of the gospel and reality, it should surprise us. It, it should come as a surprise that this crowd is before the throne of God. Why is it a surprise? Why, why should that strike us? Because who could be before the throne of God as one born in Adam without being consumed by His holiness? Without being devastated by His holiness and His holy presence? If you are a believer, you have a deep consciousness of your own sin. Of your own sin. We see this in what is often given as a, a picture. It is given as a picture of God, of this reality, and that is of Isaiah when he received his call by God to be a prophet to the nation of Israel. God gave him a vision, and he, and he gave him a vision that came with a particular clarity of the sight of his exalted state. He was the Lord high and exalted, the train of his robe filled the temple, the, the angels were around him hiding their face singing holy, holy, holy. And what was Mo Isaiah's response? You know the passage. He said, woe to me, in other words, curse me, damn me, I'm ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So here is the righteous prophet of Israel who was given a vision of the glory of God and of His holiness, an insight into His presence, and the first thing that came out of his mouth was self-condemnation because he had seen the Lord. He became acutely aware of his sin. Or think of Israel before God's presence at Sinai. They said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. So impressed they were with the holiness and the majesty of God. Or think of Peter, even in the New Testament, a disciple of Christ, when he realized he was in the boat with the presence of divinity, he fell on his face, Luke 5.8 says, and he fell at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I am a sinful man. And yet here you have a crowd before the throne of God in the fullness of His glory and of His majesty, not in fear, not in cowering fear, but in the light. Why? Because they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There should be a scene to be in the presence of God of fear, and yet we enter into a scene of worship. And this is the certainty of our hope that he gives here. They are before the throne of God, and they are fully accepted before this throne and full of joy. This is the end of everyone who has trusted in Christ, who has been cleansed by him. And this should be the certainty then that you have and that we have as the people of God that we will, and underline that word, will stand in the presence of God forgiven, worshiping with joy, 
It's not merely a song we sing, it is a reality. And our grasp of that reality is going to be evidenced by our lives, our trust in Him, the courage that we have in Him, the evidence that we actually are living for Him. It is the certainty of being before God's throne as a child, and listen to these words you're familiar with, counted, holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. If you are a Christian, you are going to stand in the presence of an infinitely holy God whose very presence should decimate us, and he's going to look at you and count you as, or give you this declaration that in Christ you are holy and blameless. Listen to how Jude 24 puts it. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Blameless with great joy. Great joy is the end of those who are in Christ at being found blameless in the presence of absolute holiness. One captured the thought of this joy in these words. Only to sit and think of God, oh what a joy it is, to think that though that uh, to think and breathe his name, earth has no higher bliss. Father of Jesus, love's reward, what rapture will it be? Prostrate before the throne to lie and gaze and gaze on thee. And gaze on him as one accepted by him. Listen to the words of Paul in Ephesians 1.4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Listen to how he says it in Ephesians 5. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. That's us, Christian. That's us. That Christ died to make us holy and blameless, that our future and our end is to be freed from this body of sin and to stand in the presence of the risen Christ and be counted holy and blameless. Martin Lloyd-Jones, speaking of this passage, captures a sense of this glory when he, in these words. He says, The holiness and the righteousness of the church is not the mere absence of sin and sins. It is the sharing of the Lord's own righteousness. God is holy, and the church becomes holy with this positive, shining righteousness, this perfection. It is much more than a mere absence of evil. It is essentially positive uprightness, truth, beauty, and everything that is glorious in all its essence as it is in God. The church partakes of that. She is clothed with the righteousness of Christ now. Thank God he sees that and not us. She will indeed be like him positively, entirely holy, and righteous. We who know Christ, so often burdened under the weight of sin, grieved by the lack of holiness in our own lives, are yet to be counted as the perfect bride of Christ, beautiful and holy, sharing his own nature, conformed completely and fully, as Paul says, one day to the body of his glory, as pure and holy as Christ in his presence to share the same intense and intimate fellowship with his Father that he has and we have in him. 
One day the stain of sin will be fully removed and we will be in his presence and before his throne as this crowd counted righteous. Counted righteous. Again, if you are a Christian, you have a sense of your sin and and so you understand the amazement of these words. The overwhelming joy and anticipation of this great day. And let us notice as well that this reality is rooted and grounded in his infinite and eternal love. Ephesians 1.4 puts it this way. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Now, that passage in Ephesians 5 is, is a, in the context of a husband's love for his wife is to reflect the love of Christ as the head of the church for his church. It's a sacrificial love. It's a sanctifying love. It is a holy love. It is a love that we are to seek all of us as Christians, however, to understand the fullness of so that we can walk in conformity to it. I just want to mention this to you. But in Ephesians 3, he says this of that love. Ephesians chapter 3. It's a prayer of Paul for the church. He says, after saying that we need to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. He says, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, and likely here, this rooted and grounded in love and the love that we express, the outward working of that love through our lives. But then he changes in verse 18, may, and may be able to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ, his love for us, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. How can you be filled up to the fullness of God? By coming to understand the greatness of His love for us in Christ. The the surpassing greatness of His love for us to Christ. It's not merely to be a doctrinal point. It is to be a vital part of our experience as Christians. It is an experiential love. Yes, it is what we take by faith. It is what we pursue in prayer. But it is also to be what we are not satisfied with until we have tasted in sincerity and in our very affections this love of Christ. This love of God in Christ. It is our strength. It is our joy. It is this love that is the assurance that we have in tribulation and trial. Romans Eight, Paul says this, and all things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Indeed, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What enabled them is he says all day in Romans 8, they're like sheep led to slaughter, experiencing tribulation, experiencing death, experiencing persecution. What is the believers and the saints hope in the midst of that? is that there is a love that they have from God even in the midst of that that can never be taken away. That they can never be separated from. We sing these words in that great song, The Love of God, the hymn. When years of time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong, Redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. So what is the confidence he gives them here? It is this, the certainty that through their trust in Christ, through the experience of His eternal and everlasting love that was set on those who are there before the foundation of the world, 
through the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ who offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sin, through the gift of his Holy Spirit, through the reality of the resurrection, that this is assured, it is made certain, it is an unshakable confidence that his people are to have, that we will stand before the throne of God and counted forgiven. Now there's another reason that this is important to understand. It is because Satan continually stands as well before the throne of God as the accuser of the brethren. As the accuser of the brethren. In verse 10 of chapter 12, John says this, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. Listen. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. We looked briefly at Zechariah chapter 3 and that great imagery of the high priest Joshua clothed in filthy garments, the filthy garments of his sin. And it says Satan was standing at his side accusing him, accusing him, accusing him of his sin, accusing him of his uncleanness, accusing him of his deserving of guilt. Now this is a particularly powerful tool of Satan for this reason. You know why? Why is that so powerful? Because his accusations are true. He's right. When he accuses of sin, he's right. When he accuses of guilt, he's right. In that sense, he has a leg to stand on. He's not making it up. He doesn't have to fabricate the guilt and the corruption in our lives. He can point to it as a reality. That's the power of it. But that is also the power of the cross. We do have sin remaining in us. And yet we have the promise that we in Christ are and will one day fully know the experience of this reality counted holy and blameless in Christ. Our clothes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Our confidence is secure, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of another, the righteousness of Christ. That means as well then that for now, as we await that great reality of being before his throne, we have also a present certainty of access to the throne of grace because Christ has entered, in the words of Hebrews 9, we read this last week, entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so we have this promise. Familiar words. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. We talked about that. We sang about it, didn't we? In the garden, your will be done. Your will be done. He was in the garden. Your will be done, he said to the Father, even as he was anticipating the great cost of our redemption, his glory, our redemption, his suffering, our salvation. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, Speaking of sovereignty, speaking of grace, speaking of his mercy, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's gone before. He has a sure and steady anchor. Listen to these words. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, while the tempest rages on, when temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won, deeper still then goes the anchor, though I justly stand accused. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. 
Christ is the anchor of our soul. He's the surety that we have before God of our salvation. He's the certainty of the hope that we have that we who are sinners, we who are guilty, will someday be before the throne and offer to him what we want and seek to offer him now, which is our worship. So this is the believer's hope. This is the believer's hope. And I want to just consider this for a moment. And we'll pick it up after this uh, next week. But what is the idea of hope? Well, if we were to give a simple definition just of the word as it's used, the one that applies to this, it is to look forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. Now I'm borrowing that one. It's to look forward with confidence to that which is good and that which is beneficial to us. And this then is the very reason or at the very center of our salvation. Paul says this in Romans 8, again, for in hope we have been saved. It is hope that enables us to persevere, to endure in trial, and to press on to the end. As the culture increasingly mounts against the very idea of Christianity, Christianity and truth, not compromised Christianity, as we consider the, the future, and as many of you probably have conversations like, Trish and I had last night, I don't remember the exact context, but it was something about, as we were thinking in 10 years or 15 years, and I think it was Trish who said, well, we might be in jail then. (laughs) She says, like, it just seems more real now. Well, we hope not, but we don't know. But the point is, is when there's persecution and when there's more of a price to pay for faith in Christ. What is the believer's anchor? It is the hope that we have in Christ. It is to look forward with confidence to that which will be the best and the most beneficial to our soul, and that is our everlasting joy in Him. And that is our armor against Satan. Let's just consider a few parts of this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he's speaking here of the day of the Lord. He's speaking of this coming wrath upon the world. And he says this to believers. He says in verse 7, those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night. Verse 8. But since we are of the day, we're of the truth, essentially, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. As a helmet, the hope of salvation. Why is it a helmet? What guards our mind, what guards our thinking, where our own flesh and where our adversary wants to attack and diminish and weaken, he says we have the hope of salvation, the certainty of salvation, the certainty that we will be with him and experience the fullness of what is ours in Christ. He says that in verse 9 then, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we shall live together with him. And then he says this in verse 11. Encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Part of the ministry that we have as saints, as the body of believers, part of what we have to encourage one another with, even as we remember it in the Lord's table, is the hope that we have in Christ. When a believer is faint, when they're weak under trials, when they're weak in the face of persecution, when they're doubting, we have a certain hope that we come alongside and remind each other of in Christ. We have the certainty of a salvation, the certainty of a future with Him, and it is our encouragement to say, hold on, trust Him, 
He gives the same idea, a parallel idea, in Ephesians 6. Again, you're familiar with this. When he talks about the believer's armor in the midst of spiritual battle, he says this in verses 14 through 15. Stand firm, having girded your loins with the truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now some take this phrase to mean preparation to preach the gospel. In other words, preparing to go out into the world and be a proclaimer of the gospel. You can't say that idea is totally absent. However, in context and how it's most commonly understood, and, and I would say is the right way to understand it, is that it's a picture of the sure foundation of the Christian, that this is defensive armor. This is what the believer has in order to stand firm against the onslaughts of the evil one in the heat of spiritual battle. It's the assurance of peace with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ that enables us to stand firm against temptation and threatening of the world. One commentator put it this way. He says this. I looked because I sent it, but I sent it late, so I wasn't sure. He says this, these words, Therefore, rather than preach the gospel of peace, believers are ready or prepared to stand against the onslaught of the evil forces because they are firmly grounded in the gospel of peace. It is the believer's sure-footedness and the tranquility of their mind and security of the heart in the gospel of peace that gives them readiness to stand against the devil and his angelic host. Another older commentator, John Gill, added this thought on this verse. It designs the constant and firm standing of believers in the faith of the gospel and so striving and contending for it without being moved from it that it may continue with them. In other words, again, it is the certainty of the believers, this certainty of standing before the throne of God, this certainty of our salvation that enables us to withstand the threats of a world that is in opposition, a world that would persecute, a world that would try to intimidate in a variety of ways, and the temptations that would come to succumb to that, to compromise in some way, this certainty of peace with God and the end of that peace with God, which is to be in his presence, presence and before the throne, it's that reality that enables the believer to stand. It's as it was noted and described in this way of this crowd in Revelation 12, 11, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, him here is the devil, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. So how can you be strong in the face of persecution? Maybe even something for some of you be facing right now, even today. Some threatening situation in your life, and particularly maybe it comes out of faithfulness to the gospel. Maybe it's not sharing with a hostile family, a household, where you fear the repercussions of it, or at work, when it's a matter of standing for what is true and righteous and not succumbing and compromising with the world. What enables that? Well, In part, it is the certainty that one day you're going to present your life and you're going to stand before Christ who gave his life for you, who did not succumb, who did not compromise, who did not in any way compromise the truth of God or veer from his mission to do the will of God for our salvation so that we could be there with him. 
It gives strength. It gives courage. It is the certainty that He is there for us and has guaranteed it for us through His resurrection. And I just want to mention this briefly. In 1 Peter chapter 1, remember he's writing to a persecuted crowd, a group scattered around because of their testimony of faith in the gospel. And what does he begin with? What does he begin with? And again, we have to get our mind into the flow of Scripture and and let it instruct us in how we're to speak to one another and to encourage one another. You know, oftentimes when there is trials or difficulties or persecution, you know, we, we want to sympathize with how hard it is and how tough it is and I'm so sorry this happened to you. And there's, there's an element of that, sure, of course. But that's not what Peter says as he's writing to these believers. He doesn't start out and say, oh, how hard it must be for you. Oh, I'm so sorry. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is among you. What, did you think it was going to be easy? Did you think the world that hated Christ was going to love you who bear his name? Listen to how he encourages. And here we have an example of that word that came from Paul to Thessalonians. Encourage one another with these truths. Peter says this, right after saying he's writing to those who are scattered, he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, even though now you have been, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is imperishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's his encouragement. That's his encouragement. We're faced with persecution. We're faced with loss. We're faced with consequences because of a righteous life or the testimony of Christ. What is the encouragement? We have an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for us, guaranteed by the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ the sending of the Spirit, affirmed and we're given reminders in His Word. And so He says, stand strong and stand firm. That then then points us to how do we gain this hope? How do we gain this hope in Christ? How do we gain this certainty? How do we gain this assurance? Well, let me just give you two quickly. Hope is grounded in Scripture. You have to know His Word. Let me ask you, how often are you in the Word during the week? How often, how much time do you spend in prayer? How much time do you spend in a closet, away, undistracted? Not while you're driving in the car, not when you eat breakfast. Are you spending with alone, alone with the Lord in prayer? 10 minutes, 15 minutes, no minutes? How often are you in the Word of God? Not just reading it to check that off on your you know, Bible chart for the year, but how often are you spending time to say, my goal here is not to finish a certain number of verses, but to fellowship and meet with the Lord, that I could be strengthened and instructed by His Word. Hope is not going to happen any other way. 
Certainty is not going to happen by a simple zap from heaven. Yes, the Spirit prompts. Yes, the Spirit points us in that direction. Yes, if we know Christ, the Spirit has opened our eyes to see Him. But we can quickly forget, and that can fade away. And we need to constantly be in His Word. Listen to what Paul says to the Romans. He says, for whatever, in verse 4 of chapter 15, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grants you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. How are you going to gain hope? You're going to gain it as you spend time in His Word. As your mind, as your thoughts are renewed by Scripture and through the power of the Spirit working through His Word and thus coming to the Lord in prayer in response to His Word, He creates hope and He creates certainty. As we confess our sins, we're reminded again that we're covered and our robes are washed white and made white in the blood of the Lamb. Then we're in the process of that being having instilled in us a hope and a certainty and an encouragement and a growth in our trust and confidence in the Lord and all that he has accomplished for us. That's how Scripture gives us his promises. He he reminds us, even as we see here, we're going to stand before the throne. Scripture gives us examples, as he told them in Hebrews. Consider those who have gone before you who didn't consider either like Moses the riches of Egypt or like others who were willing to be in holes and caves or sawn in two. They didn't consider any of that a reason to neglect their hope and to remain faithful to the God of promise. We see examples, we see warnings of those who have lost their hope. We see those who have made a profession and then walked away. That was prayed in both of the prayers providentially uh, this morning. We read about it in Judas. It is through the scriptures. It is through the reminder of that Christ did stand in our place. He did atone for our sin. It is through the reminder that he did give us our spirit to strengthen us so we don't stand in our strength, but we stand in his. This is how we have hope in the scriptures. But you have to be in the word. One of the first questions to ask in counseling is this. What's your spiritual life like? What are your spiritual, how much time are you spending in the Word each week? Sometimes it's, ah, you know, well, not so great. Well, problem number one. (laughs) That's where you start. We need to be in the Word. We need to be in Scripture. And I know as I'm looking at you that some of you aren't there very much. And so I'm encouraging you to open the Word. Make it your discipline to be in the Word every morning when you wake. To spend some time exposing yourself to the truth of God. Don't let a day go by. If you miss a, if you miss a day when you weren't in your Word, it should bother you. It should, it should bother your soul to say, I want to be there tomorrow. Because it's my strength. It's my food. It's where I eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ, as it were who is the bread of life. So, if we want this hope, my encouragement to you is be in the Word of God. You must be in the Word of God. And then it is not only being in the Word, but look if you're in Romans 15, what he says. It is also through the work of the Spirit. And so he says in verse 13, Now by the God of hope, the God of hope, 
The God who is our hope in the very center and substance of our hope and the God who gives hope, he says this, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in what? In believing. In believing what? Everything he said in the scriptures. Why? So that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you'll abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's something that many of you know. I'll just remind you. Uh, The Spirit only works according to the Word. We're not mystics who think, well, if we go out somewhere and meditate on our, you know, by ourselves somewhere, that we'll get this incredible divine light. That's what Quakers and, and Catholic mystics and those kind of things try to accomplish. No, the Spirit works through His Word. He teaches through His Word. He convicts through His Word. He reproves through his word. He trains through his word. He makes you adequate through his word. He increases hope through his word. He points you to Christ through his word. He renews your mind through his word. That's how he does it. That's how the spirit works. You don't go off somewhere and just wait for some spiritual experience. You have to know him in his word. And the spirit works there. The spirit meets with you there. You're not alone when you come to the word. It is the living word from the living God and the living spirit. And you go there as a child of God and you hear the voice of Christ and he teaches you and then you ask him to teach you when you're confused and he gives you wisdom. And you say, Holy Spirit, fulfill your ministry. Teach me. Show me Christ. Fill me with hope. Convict me of my sin search me and know me if there's any hurtful way in me and you plead with the Lord and so this is how this hope comes is through his word we meditate we pray we ask and I want to note just finally this that this this certainty this fruit of having our robes washed and having made them white in the blood of the lamb then is also a purifying hope it's a purifying hope And this is the last thing I want to say before we come to the table. It's a purifying hope. So what should be the effect of this? To say they are before the throne of God. They are certainly there. This is your end. This is your hope. It's given as an encouragement. It should be a purifying hope. It should give courage in the face of adversity, but it should also give us motivation in the face of sin to put it to death and to seek to grow in Christ. Let me remind you of familiar words. 1 John chapter 3, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. And such we are. And for this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. And just as a footnote here, If you feel as comfortable in the world and as at home in the world and among unbelieving acquaintances as you do among the community of saints, it's very likely you're not saved. There's a distinction that the people of God have together. There is a spirit-wrought spiritual love for Christ that we share together and that unites our hearts in one mind and one faith because we have one Lord and one salvation and one hope together. There is within the child of God a unique love for the people of God because we have a shared love for Christ. And so the world, you, the world should seem stranger and stranger to you as you grow in Christ. And you should seem stranger and stranger to the world when they look at you. So that's just a little side note. 
For this reason, the world does not know us because it does not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And here it is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Do you want to know one of the greatest powerful weapons that we have against sin? is to realize our hope, to meditate on being before the throne of God, to think about the end. Scripture is full of that. Think about the very way the epistles are written. What does he do? He has an emphasis. It's not exclusive. It's an emphasis on doctrine very often in Paul's epistles. And then what does he do in the second part? He has an emphasis on how we apply it. Right? That we... If we've been raised up with Christ, we seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If you've experienced the grace of the gospel, walk worthy of that gospel. And if we understand the glory of God and how everything tends to His glory and has the end of His glory, then we're going to offer to Him as our spiritual service of worship our very lives and our bodies as a holy and acceptable sacrifice. It is to realize our hope in Christ. And if we realize that mercy and that hope and that reality of our end, it's our battle against sin. He says here, that hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Oh, it's not always certain. We waffle, we fade, we wonder, we get distracted. But this is the plumb line that keeps us always what we're striving for and pulls us back. We fail, we do get weak. But don't we praise God that even as Jude said, he's able to keep us from stumbling. He's able to keep us. He's able to pull us back when we wander off in the weeds to the paths of righteousness. He uses his word. He uses the community of the saints. He uses a variety of things. But what he always pulls us back to is this is our hope. And it's there that he strengthens us. And it's there that we have a strength to live for him in this world. So let me ask this question as we come into the table. Do you have this certainty? Do you have this hope? Or maybe we could even ask it like this. If you're a believer, you want it. And so you know that you're, you're striving after it and you need to be in his word. You need to be in prayer. You need to be always here among the saints. You need to be serving and not just leak coming and going. You need to be active. God strengthens us through that as well. But more importantly, my question would be this. Do you have innately in your heart a longing to be with Christ? And and a longing to be with Christ that is more appealing and more valuable to you than anything this world has to offer? That's the question. Is that where your affections are? Has your life experienced a change that marks death from death to life, in which there's a new reorientation of your life towards Christ and towards the things of heaven? Are you trying to strengthen that in your heart, those glories? Well, that's what you need to ask yourself. Let me ask you this as well, finally. Does this hope give you courage in trials, strength in temptation, and a motivation to live for him and not for the world? Well, if those things you answer in the affirmative... Again, stronger at some times, weaker at others, a process of growth. But if that defines your inner life, then, there's, then you have every reason to be encouraged that this is your end 
and to keep pursuing Christ. If that is not, and that, that just sounds like Christian talk or the kind of thing that has no bearing on you when you walk out these doors and when you wake up Monday morning and you're at work or that alarm goes off and your Bible's off somewhere, you don't know, you'll find it next week. If that's true, then you have every reason to be concerned about your soul and you need to ask God to show you the truth and give you this hope in Christ to give you this reality of who you are and who he is and the end of all things, that you would trust him and hope in him. And these are the realities that are in God's people to be strengthened through these symbols. Paul again said, we were saved in hope. And these symbols in the Lord's table are symbols of that hope that Christ has redeemed us. He has fulfilled the will of the Father. That he has laid down his life as an offering for sin that he has resurrected from the dead, that he is right now at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, that he is returning for us one day, that these kingdom reality and promises are true. As a matter of fact, they're the most true thing. If that, that is what our faith is to be lay hold of and be reminded of in these elements. So I would pray that you would meditate on these things as the men come and pass it out. And let me pray. Father, thank you for your word that gives us hope. But we realize that it's not a matter of us just intellectually figuring things out. It's not only a matter of just piling on doctrinal knowledge of these truths. Salvation and sanctification is not mechanical. It's not just do this and spiritual life happens. But I pray that you would put into our hearts the longings to know you that you would help us in our hearts that can so easily become dull to have affections for Christ, to desperately come to your word as our food that we need for survival, to open our eyes evermore to see the glories of Christ and remove from us the distractions that are always fighting to get us to be focused on this world and our lives here rather than the one that is to come. Would you use these elements now, these, these symbols, these reminders, and would you strengthen and encourage our faith through them by pointing our eyes to Christ? Help us to sit with you in that room with the disciples as you explained to them that this was your body and your blood and that you would not drink it again until the kingdom came, comes. Would you remind us and help us to see your people throughout the ages that have held these promises and did not love their life even to death? Would you help us even now in our own lives to be strengthened and to see our end in Christ in such a way that we would put away sinful habits, that we would, that we would have courage to do what we need to do to be faithful to you in our lives, and that we would have an unshakable hope and delight and glory in our Savior who assures us that with all of our stumblings, with all of our remaining sin, he has given us an offering, or he has made an offering once and for all that assures us that we will be in your presence, blameless with great joy, worshiping around your throne with joy and glory unending. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.